1: Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. You can work from the road while
2: turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi on the network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The
3: 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet... There's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow The Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.
0: What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash paper
4: Okay, well, um, hi. Hi. Are you saying hi to me or hi to them?
0: Both.
5: Oh, that's
4: nice. <laughs> hey, I mean, I've barely seen you today.
5: So <laughs> that's true. That's fair. Nice to see you. Yeah. We enjoyed two action packed films
4: right. recently yeah. The
5: Mitchells versus The Machines and also Nobody with Bob Odenkirk. Very different. <laughs> Almost action. the same movie, honestly. <laughs> Very different. <laughs> barely tell the difference. Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, yeah, no, those were both great.
5: Yeah. Yeah, I thought the style was really cool. Yeah. I really enjoyed the animation of it. Yeah. it was super weird.
4: Yep. Fun little story. That Furby got Ugh. me. And then nobody was such a fun, um, I don't know if fun is the word.
5: <laughs> People suffered <laughs> in that film. <laughs>
4: but it was, the. I mean, you know, it was it was a dance. Oh, yeah. Much like John Wick. It's an action dance movie. Yeah,
5: yeah. Choreography throughout. I'm into, so yeah. yeah, I was like, great.
4: And it was well done, yeah. All right.
5: But well- yes, action, speaking of action, I'm Diana. And I'm Eli. And today we want to talk about William and Ellen Craft. These were two slaves living in Macon, Georgia. And one day they decided to escape slavery and run 1,000 miles to freedom. How did they do it? Their daring escape. It's an amazing story. I just cannot stress enough how crazy this story is. Uh, it's full of close shaves, um, pretty heinous human beings, a lot of terrible examples of humanity, and a lot of good examples of humanity as well. And their story was chronicled in a book, Running a Thousand Miles for Freedom, which is written by William Kraft.
4: That's right. And we're going to get all into those crazy details coming up right now.
5: Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance. A production of iHeartRadio.
4: Ellen was born in 1826 to Maria, a mixed-race woman, and her wealthy planter and slaver, Major James Smith. She resembled her father's other children so much that she was often mistaken as a member of his family, which his wife did not like. Uh-uh. So when Ellen was 11, she was given as a wedding gift to their daughter, Eliza Cromwell-Smith. Just to erase any of the evidence of his infidelity.
5: Yeah, just send her away from here.
4: So Eliza, the woman who now owned her, was married to Dr. Robert Collins and took Ellen with her to her new husband's place in Macon, Georgia. Ellen grew up as a house servant to Eliza.
5: And William grew up in Macon, enslaved to a guy that he has no trouble talking shit about. (laughs) don't say. (laughs) Which I don't blame him at all. Uh, Oh, they
4: didn't get along? I know,
5: right? What, you didn't respect and admire this fucking asshole? Um, (laughs) Anyway, he wrote, My old master had the reputation of being a very humane and Christian man, but he thought nothing of selling my poor old father and dear aged mother at separate times to different persons to be dragged off never to behold each other ever again.
4: That's monstrous.
5: Uh, Yeah.
4: I know that's like the least of the monstrous we'll encounter Moving forward, but that's peak monster. So, it, yeah, the idea that it can even get worse from there is
5: yeah hard to grade the levels of it really is shit that they are willing to drag yeah people through at this yeah. period of time.
4: That's very true.
5: Uh, this master had had William apprenticed to a cabinet maker, and his brother was apprenticed to a blacksmith, so they would generate more income for him, of course, because he kept most of what they earned. Mm but then he decided to sell them to pay off some gambling debts. William
4: wrote in his book, My old master also sold a dear brother and a sister in the same manner as he did my father and mother. The reason he assigned for disposing of my parents, as well as several other aged slaves, was that they were getting old and would soon become valueless in the market, and therefore he intended to sell off all the old stock and buy in a young lot. A most disgraceful conclusion for a man to come to who made such great professions of religion. This shameful conduct gave me a thorough hatred, not for true Christianity, but for slaveholding piety.
5: Yes, throughout the book, he's pretty mad at Christians. Yeah. He's like, if you truly believe the word of God, then you cannot countenance this barbarity of slavery. Yeah. And if you do countenance it, then you cannot be a true Christian. Outrageous, yeah. Um, William begged for a chance to say goodbye to his sister, but they would not let him. And it really royally pissed him off that they would not give him even this tiny, tiny concession of humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, In recounting the emotional separation from his sister at an auction, William stated that this event sent red hot indignation darting like lightning through every vein. It quenched my tears and appeared to set my brain on fire and made me crave for power to avenge our wrongs. And at the auction where his brother and sister were sold, he was, quote, knocked down to the cashier of the bank to which we were mortgaged and ordered to return to the cabinet shop where I previously worked. He was only 16 at this time. So I guess he was basically the bank's property at this point.
4: So uh, as best you can understand this is that, you know, they would mortgage human beings like property. They would get a payment from the bank to buy them in full and then put a down payment down and make payments on that. And... Now he, like, sells him back. So he, so he ends up back at the cabinet shop where he apprenticed, originally where he had bought him from. It's like, I'm not going to finish making these payments. I'm just going to sell him back. And Dr. Collins, whose wife is that woman Eliza, remember, who Ellen was gifted to, he now owns half interest in William. So in the course of things, he ends up meeting Ellen, and they fell in love. But for a long time, Ellen refused to marry William because she was so scared of having children that would be sold away from her.
5: Yeah, he wrote the mere thought of her ever becoming the mother of a child to linger out a miserable existence under the wretched system of American slavery appeared to fill her very soul with horror, which can't blame her. Sounds terrible. They did try to think of a plans to escape and stuff so that they could eventually get married. But um, a couple years later, they're kind of like, it's impossible to escape from Georgia. They, quote, settled down to slavery and went ahead and got married.
4: Uh, to have to settle down to slavery.
5: Yeah. It's a good read. I'll say that. It's, it really, really puts you there.
4: Well, and one of the reasons they would say that settling down to slavery has to do with the absolute incomprehensible risk that really existed in escape.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: We can't overstate the dangers of trying to escape slavery. Any white person anywhere had complete impunity. And this is across the country. Mm-hmm. They had total impunity to ask you who you were. And take you back to your enslaver and just hand you over. And at that point, typically what would happen is, of course, severe punishment. They would give you either the worst, most difficult and horrible labor to do on the property or straight up torture. Just legit physical torture, psychological torture, whatever they could think of. And that was supposed to serve as a warning to other slaves to not try to escape. Right. Mm -hmm. William points out, quote, it's a fact worthy of remark that nothing seems to give slaveholders so much pleasure as the catching and torturing of fugitives. They had much rather take the keen and poisonous lash and with it cut their poor trembling victims to atoms than allow one of them to escape to a free country and expose the infamous system from which they'd fled. (sighs)
6: So
4: it, it, it says so much because it shows that these people knew how horrible they were and didn't want anyone else to know it, right? That was Mm -hmm. part of it. They can't escape because people can't know what we're doing here.
5: Yeah, I think I think there's some real propaganda going on around slavery where it's sort of like it's better for them. We're very kind to them. They love it here. Listen to them singing, you know, that type of shit. Yeah, because it comes up later that they really come across this attitude of like, I would never be so unkind as to free a slave. That would be so mean of me. And it's like, what? (laughs) Yeah. That's such a weird, but I have to imagine that there's some shit coming out, of you know, from the South being like, y'all are great. What are you upset about? This is great yeah. for everybody and they like it and don't worry and whatever. Yeah. And, you know, so just to keep people from being abolitionists, I think. Right. More specifically and like trying right. to help.
4: Yeah. It's all part of the same machine. And then the other side of it, too, is just, you know, you look at this torture. He says they'd, they'd rather mm-hmm. whip these people. And it, it's similar to what I talked about during the the press covering the Lonely Hearts Killers in the last episode. That there's so many people out there that are just waiting for a reason to be cruel, mm-hmm. which is one of the worst takeaways from some of these stories we've been telling. It's <laughs> I know, really disheartening. It's very cynical, but but it, it, there are some people that just they're just waiting for a little bit of permission. Yeah, just give me a reason mm-hmm. to be a monster, and I. Oh, thank God I get to be a monster for a minute. It's mind-blowing to me, but...
5: I mean, isn't that basically what the Purge movies are about?
4: Right. Get it out of your system.
5: Right. So, yeah, all those dangers are facing them with escaping. And so that's kind of why they're like, you know what? How the how the fuck are we supposed to do this? Let's just deal with this life that we're... this The hand we've been dealt, kind of. But they're still really afraid to have children. They really don't want to have children. And so they're like, we need to get out of this shithole. <laughs> And William, one day, has this crazy idea. So crazy that it just might work. He thought, you know, my wife looks super white. Even white people think she's white. So there's got to be some, that's got to be something we can use. But she can't just dress up like a white lady because it was very unusual for women to travel with just a male servant. They normally had at least a female servant as well or instead of. So he's like, she can't dress up like just a white lady. So what if, what if I'm William slave, but you, Ellen, are Mr. Johnson, white slave owner, heading to Philadelphia? And Ellen's like, William, you are crazy. That is the crazy, that is crazy. She's like, first of all, neither of us can read or write, and they're going to ask us to sign our names at some point. Um, Second of all, I'm a lady. (laughs) Maybe that should have been the first thing, but whatever. (laughs) Third of all, you're crazy. (laughs) But eventually she's kind of like, you know what? We don't have any better ideas. And she kind of gets into it. (laughs) And Ellen is a smart lady. And she decides the best way for her to travel incognito is to be an invalid. So she's like, I'll really lay it on thick that this guy's sick as fuck. So
4: I love the, the character building. You know, the real work, I'm like, okay, he's an invalid,
5: mm-hmm.
4: maybe a monocle, or I don't know, a crutch, mm-hmm. something.
5: Yeah, spectacles, mm-hmm. yeah, su- to suggest poor eyesight. Right. She had him wrap a bandage around her jaw up to the top of her head uh-huh. that she hit kind of wore a big top hat over it. But it was to hide her beardless face. Right. And it was meant to indicate that she had a toothache. Ouch. And then she had a cane, and she wrapped her arm in a sling because she's like, that way, it, and she, it was her right arm. So she's like, that way when they ask me to sign our name, I'll just be like, oh, I can't because my arms hurt. Can you sign for me? Yeah. And so that way they can get around that. Meanwhile, William is collecting all the various pieces of her disguise. He's got to go get spectacles and a cane and a man's shirt and a top hat and everything and shoes for her and everything um, without anybody noticing that he's buying all this weird shit. Right. Except the trousers, which she found necessary to make. He did make a note about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, no trousers was fitting there. <laughs> she had to make <laughs> her own. And since she was a favorite with a, with her mistress, Eliza, Ellen had a little room of her own. So she was able to hide all this stuff in her room. So I'm picturing like a Shawshank thing where she had like a hole in the wall right. <laughs> or like a chest. And she's like got clothes over it or uh-huh. something like that. A little, little false panel in the
4: bottom or something. Totally. Maybe? Yeah. yeah.
5: And she's got like a mirror or something that makes a look <laughs> yeah. not as deep. I don't know. They're, they're crushing it. They're basically heisting themselves.
4: Another essential piece was that it was almost the Christmas holidays, and both of them had to convince their enslavers to give them a few days off to celebrate Christmas. It wasn't, this isn't totally unheard of, right? This would happen sometimes, but they both knew they were doomed without the head start of a few days that a pass would get them. He writes, After no little perseverance on my wife's part, <laughs> she got permission to take a few days. And he also requested time off and wrote, quote, The cabinet maker with whom I worked gave me a pass as well, but he said he needed my services very much and wished me to return as soon as the time granted was up. I thanked him kindly, but somehow I have not been able to make it convenient to return yet. <laughs> as the free air of good old England agrees so well with my wife and our dear little ones, as well as with myself, it is not likely that we will return at present to the peculiar institution of chains and stripes.
5: <laughs> Damn. I'm telling he you. is...
4: No, he's not holding back on the sass.
5: No, the 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 humor is really fun. I, <laughs> this book is worth reading. It's not very long, and it's it, there's a kind of a real wry, kind of sly humor in it. That's oh, really gee, fun. Oh, gee, you
4: know what? I still haven't made it back to the shop. I told him I'd be there <laughs> on Tuesday, and it's <laughs> been 17 years.
5: It reminds me a lot of how my grandfather would joke.
4: Yeah, it, totally. It's
5: that kind of. It's very sideways. Like if you're not looking for the humor, you might not see it. Right. But I kind of also loved, after no little perseverance on my wife's part, like, she really (laughs) had to convince this bitch. (laughs) (laughs) But finally, the last piece of the puzzle, William cut Ellen's hair to neck length. She put on her men's clothes. She wrapped up the bandage. She put her arm in the sling. She put her spectacles on. She put on her hat, picked up her cane. They prayed together for a successful leap to liberty. And it was time to go. It was December 21st 1848
4: leaving Macon Georgia and heading north in the middle of December is uh cold and Brave. gonna get worse
5: <laughs> very true
4: I mean you know obviously it's it's Macon Georgia it's not the coldest here but the further north they go the colder it's gonna get it's gonna be the coldest time of year but this was the time to go
5: the colder it gets the closer to freedom you are yeah. probably how they were feeling
4: so they go to the train station, and Ellen buys tickets for Savannah, which is 200 miles away. And as William is going to sit down, he sees the cabinet maker. The cabinet maker had had some idea that the two of them might make a run for it, so he'd gone to the station to check if they were there. He questioned the ticket seller, and then started looking in the windows of each of the train cars. He never gave the bandaged invalid a second glance. But... He would know William right away, so William shrank down into his seat and turned his face away from the window, desperate to hide. Just as he approached William's car, the bell clanged and the train started moving. Whew. Close call.
5: I was on the edge of my seat. Meanwhile, Ellen is sitting in her train car, probably kind of freaking out because she's she's They're separated. You know, he can't be in the same train car as as his wealthy white owner. she's
4: just up here being a white man.
5: Yeah, she's got to sit up here and just be a white guy somehow. (laughs) (laughs) With all these assholes, mostly, (laughs) that she encounters. So she's sitting there, you know, keeping it together. And then she hears the words, It is a very fine morning, sir. (laughs) A man has joined her in the car who she knows very well. It's Mr. Cray, who is a friend of Dr. Collins and a frequent dinner guest. So she's like, fuck, like if he looks too close, he is definitely going to notice like who I am. So she pretended to be deaf. (laughs) She just did not (laughs) respond. She's like, I don't see you. I don't hear you. Unfortunately, that worked. He decided not to bother her anymore. But there were two other guys in the carriage too, and they all started talking. And I will let William speak for... (laughs) For me on this one. The gentleman then turned the conversation upon the three great topics of discussion in first class circles in Georgia, namely N-words, cotton and abolitionists. My master had heard of abolitionists. By the way, he's calling Ellen his master at this point in the story. Right. So as soon as she's as soon as they're on the journey in the story, she's his master, Mr. Johnson, him. He's getting into it. Right. My master had heard of abolitionists, but in such a connection as to cause him to think that they were a fearful kind of wild animal. But he was highly delighted to learn from the gentleman's conversation that the abolitionists were persons opposed to oppression, and therefore, in his opinion, not the lowest, but the very highest of God's creatures. Without the slightest objection on my master's part, the gentleman left the carriage at Gordon for Milledgeville. (laughs)
4: Wow. Once they were in Savannah they boarded a steamer ship for Charleston, South Carolina. Ellen even sat with the captain at breakfast who marveled at the young master's very attentive boy and warned him to beware of cutthroat abolitionists in the North who would encourage William to run away. She's just got to be, like, holding it in at this point, right? Uh, this, they, is what I, this is what yeah. I imagine, is that they, are like... Are just petrified at first oh. every time they see somebody like oh my god this isn't gonna work but there must be at a point where they just are kind of like holding in the laughter yes at how fucking well this is working and how dumb these idiots are
5: you're so right it's it's very clear in the book that they had kind I mean they were totally afraid like you're saying but right. they kind of were getting a kick out of this because they were kind. firstly they were like the stuff that white people are willing to say to each other the shit y'all talking about is and Ellen's like oh I'm listening I'm taking a record Uh you know William didn't know about that conversation she had to tell him about that shit so she's like oh these bitches suck and then also you know she's getting treated really well as a white person and that's making them laugh and then they keep they keep offering to buy her husband and of course she keeps (laughs) saying no and they keep don't they just don't get it (laughs) you know they're just they do seem to be having a little bit of fun with it which I think is awesome.
4: So a slave trader on board even offered to purchase William, like you said, and a military officer scolded Ellen for saying thank you to him, telling her nothing spoils a slave so soon. And if people would just be meaner to slaves, they would be as humble as dogs and never dare to run away. Yeah, Yeah. right. That was the problem with slavery. It wasn't mean enough. We
5: figured it out, guys. If it had just been meaner and crueler, it would have been fine. Jesus Christ. God. Like, you know, people are running away because of how cruel you are, right? right. Like, I'm not sure you know what the fuck's going on around here. You know
4: it. what might have made slaves stick around longer? If they weren't slaves, uh, yeah. if they were getting paid a good uh, wage for their work and not treated like animals.
5: Yeah, and they could keep their own children.
4: Yeah, and weren't owned by anyone, and were are actually not slaves, just people.
5: Yeah, see, we fi- <sighs> we f- we fixed that one, <laughs> sort of. Yeah, and they do get get a really big kick out of how well Ellen is treated. They stayed overnight at the Best Hotel in Charleston to wait for their train to Philadelphia. And the staff was, like, so solicitous of the ailing Mr. Johnson. They, like, came out to, like, help him out of the carriage when they got there. They gave him the finest room and the nicest table in the dining room. And they just waited on him hand and foot. So William's, like, definitely laughing about this. (laughs) He's like, what a time. And Ellen gave all the servants a tip. And I just thought this was fun of the time slang, I Mm. guess. Ellen gave all the servants a tip, which caused them to tell William, your master is a big bug, meaning a gentleman of distinction. He's the greatest gentleman that has been this way this six months. I said, yes, he is some pumpkins, meaning the same as big bug. (laughs) (laughs) Some pumpkins. (laughs) I love
4: that. (laughs) So the idea is they'll take the steamer from charleston to philly and then they're free right but they found out that the last steamer for the winter had already left mm-hmm. and that a fugitive slave had been found on board so they were actually glad they hadn't taken that ship after all because the scrutiny probably would have been oh, really intense you. so they had a different route they could go through wilmington north carolina and they went to buy tickets at the custom house and the ticket seller asked ellen to sign for the tickets she did the thing where she indicated her arm was broken and and asked him to sign for her, but he refused. Because in an effort to prevent white abolitionists from helping slaves escape, it was a rule that slaveholders had to prove that slaves traveling with them were their property. Sometimes, as the Smithsonian writes, travelers were detained for days trying to prove ownership. The ticket seller, whom William calls, quote, a very mean-looking, cheese-colored fellow, (laughs) actually jammed his hands in his pockets to prove How much he wouldn't sign for Ellen and William?
5: I just like like he he just straight up put his hand like I'm not not doing it. Do it like what a little Cartman.
4: (laughs) (laughs) So fortunately, just then in that moment. Things are tense. What's going to happen? And in walks the captain of the steamer they'd been on the night before. And he just walked by and vouched for them. Said, oh, I know this guy, Mr. Johnson. He's a great man. Mm -hmm. And he signed for their tickets. And they were good to go once more. Just
5: another narrow escape. My heart is pounding. Seriously. So many times. So they get on the train to Baltimore. It's the last major stop before Pennsylvania, which is a free state. In Running a Thousand of Miles to Freedom, William recounts some of the interesting people that Ellen met in her train car, including a man with his two daughters who asked what she was sick with. And when she said inflammatory rheumatism, he said he, he was so sorry because he knew with bitter experience the pains of rheumatism. And William wrote, if he did, he knew a good deal more than Mr. Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> And he also implied that the two daughters took quite a fancy to Mr. Johnson. Oh my. They kind of had a little crush on him and said, to use an American expression, they fell in love with the wrong chap. <laughs>
4: <laughs> You're barking up the wrong tree, sister. Sorry,
5: ladies, <laughs> this one's taken and also not what you think. <laughs> so they were pretty harmless. They were just funny, you know, whatever. But. Unfortunately, they did not only have harmless, funny, crushing white ladies on board. They had this heinous woman get on the train in Richmond, Virginia, and she straight up tells the people in the carriage with her, the train car with her, that her husband had freed all of their slaves in his will when he died, but she knew he'd never do such an unkind thing if he was in his right mind, so she and her friends made it so the will was rewritten and she got to keep all the slaves and she got into this argument with an abolitionist who was on board and he was like so you denied them their liberty and she kept being like well I wouldn't if it wasn't you know like they're just so annoying they keep running away and like causing me so much so many troubles and my son who's a good Christian minister is, keeps telling me to just forget it all and move in with him or whatever and he's like yeah just let him free then do it go ahead then <laughs> Whatever." and when she finally gets off the abolitionist turns to Ellen and called her an old whining, hypocritical humbug.
4: <laughs> wow.
5: So anyway, Ellen really had to hold it down throughout some some conversations. Is what I want to stress with these. Things. Yeah. She she she's the one who's having to hear all this crazy shit and right. bite not, her tongue and bite right. her tongue to slivers probably. Yeah.
4: And as they were told, the abolitionists did approach William and tell him to run away from Ellen and have his liberty. They even gave him information about boarding houses and safe places that he could go, which he, of course, had to keep refusing, but later said that he found that information very useful. So, in this entertaining way, they get to Baltimore on Christmas Eve, which has a particularly vigilant border because it's the last stop to a free state. So William and Ellen are again detained because they don't have the papers that say Ellen owns William. And the train officer explained to them that should they let anyone cross the border who was escaping from slavery, they would have to pay for it. Right. So, of course, they were being very careful, like, oh, we don't want to be stuck with the bill.
5: Nothing personal.
4: Yeah. Uh, we'd love to let you be, you know, not a slave anymore, but it would cost us at least a few dollars. We just can't.
5: Too many dollars.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So Ellen and William thought that the jig was up there. They really thought we've made it so far. William writes, "'We felt as though we had come into deep waters "'and were about to be overwhelmed "'and return to the dark and horrible pit of misery.' "'The departure bell clanged, "'and the officer scratched his head, "'and finally just said, "'Well, oh, I guess it's all right. "'I can tell you're sick "'and it would be a shame to stop you.'
5: "'So he <laughs> let
4: them pass, "'and Ellen and William finally boarded the train "'for Philadelphia and for freedom.'
5: Huzzah for lazy train workers. <laughs>
4: <laughs> really, that's all they needed was just someone to just be like, eh, don't feel like dealing with this. Yeah.
5: <laughs>
4: Amazing. Uh, yes, and we'll find out about their freedom when we get back from this break.
2: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
1: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God.
2: You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi.
1: at purdueglobal.edu.
5: Welcome back. It is Christmas Day, and William and Ellen have arrived in Philadelphia. Shit, y'all, they are free. When William saw the lights of Philadelphia, he said, I felt that the straps that bound the heavy burden to my back began to pop and the load to roll off. And Ellen burst into tears. Smithsonian points out she had to keep up a multi-layered deception, which we were just talking about. She was finding excuses for not drinking brandy or smoking cigars like gentlemen often normally did. Right. Um, She had to be worried about slavers kidnapping William back in the other car not being totally separate from him not really knowing what was going on with him she had to disguise her voice and mannerisms and she had to listen to these mean old white bitches talking all the time so her nerves are frayed she's She's exhausted
4: been in the most dangerous character of all time for well over a week at this point insane
5: deception they needed a rest. Yeah. Okay, so they went to this boarding house that was run by an abolitionist, which was so kindly recommended to me. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> They showed up as William and Mr. Johnson and then startled the landlord considerably when Ellen emerged from their room a few minutes later. They had to convince them that they were the same person. And the landlord gathered a bunch of abolitionists at his house to figure out how best to help the crafts. And they kind of decided, you know what, it's not safe in Philly because it's just one border away from a non-free state, it's too easy for, for slave catchers to come in here and get your, you and take you back to the deep south. Right. So they decided they would go on to Boston, where, quote, public opinion had become so much opposed to slavery and to kidnapping that it was almost impossible for anyone to take a fugitive slave out of that state.
4: Thanks, Boston.
5: Thanks, Boston. Boston looks great in this story, by the way. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> Boston take really it, Boston. looks amazing in this story. <laughs> Hold on to
4: this one, Boston.
5: <laughs> <For real. laughs>
4: you don't always get that treatment. It's true. Um, but like we said, still nerves were frayed, and they were both exhausted from this harrowing journey, right? Mm-hmm. So they decided that they would rest for a minute before heading to Boston. Just give me a second. Mm-hmm. So they went to stay with a Quaker named Mr. Barclay Ivins and his wife, who were pretty cool, and they kept them safe for three weeks. And they taught them to write their names and the basics of readings. so they could get on better with their new lives. In the book, William is basically like, never before had a white person been so nice to us in such an everyday way. And it made Ellen realize that there were good and bad people of every color and creed. And then they moved on to Boston.
5: Which I just want to say, this is 1848, the book came out in 1860, so they didn't oh. learn to write until 1848, and then he's writing all this amazing shit yeah. like not that long after. Yeah. I just think that's cool. Um, in Boston, things are cool. William goes back to making cabinets. Uh, he gets to keep the money this time, so it works out a lot better for him. <laughs>
4: hey, well, th- You know what? This is way better. <laughs> hey, hmm. I don't mind doing the work when I'm getting a fucking wage for it. Okay, and, and I can be proud of it. God damn.
5: <sighs> yeah, Ellen is working as a seamstress. They live in Beacon Hill. At Lewis and Harriet Hayden's house, and it was like a boarding house where other fugitive slaves and residents of the city lodged. The National Park Service actually has this really cool website journey where you can follow on a map all the different places they end up in their escape. As abolitionist William Still wrote, the story of their escape was heralded broadcast over the country. And they spoke at anti-slavery meetings in Boston and other towns in New England, alongside abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison and Samuel May and other fugitive slaves like Frederick Douglass and William Wells Brown. So they were trying to, I think, inspire people and and again, explain this shit is heinous. You should be against it. It's not cool. You should be trying everything you can do to change this horrible situation for Uh, your fellow man.
4: You know, I wonder without mass media at the time. Without, you know, the information being so readily available, if you weren't in the direct path of someone explaining it to you, mm-hmm. you know, then you were probably getting the propaganda of people saying, this is good. This is a good thing for everyone, you know, so uh, but it must be a lot of work to make sure that that is getting out to everyone mm-hmm. to, to change. Those, like these are This is an easy mentality shift for any halfway decent person to make, but it's we've got to reach them first. That's got to be a challenge.
5: To be an abolitionist was probably very hard because a lot of other white people were like, what are you talking about? That's terrible for the economy. You're going to crash everything. You're going to fuck everything up if you do that. And also, some of them probably truly believed this dumb shit about it being unkind because they didn't think genetically that that black people were the same as as white people. And so they thought it would be something awful or whatever. So you really have a lot to work against in, in those (laughs) <laughs> With that kind of attitude,
4: and the fact that these people have like already like uh, a worst case nature, you know, like their their mentality yeah. is already fucking cruel. Like they'd even that they would even believe that in the first place. Yeah, that some people are lesser than others, mm-hmm. and you're working against not only the propaganda that they're embedded in, but also their own fucking stupid brains Mass. too. <laughs>
5: Which is why I like to, I I do like to talk about abolitionists because I feel like a lot of people hide behind that, well, they were a product of their time thing. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, so were abolitionists. They were also a product of their time and it was very clear to them that this was wrong and not cool and needed to be changed and they would do whatever needed to be done to change it. So, Yeah. Wrong that's right. not a good excuse right everybody Ev- knew forever that that was fucked up
4: yeah every time the product of their time argument comes up mm-hmm. you can say yeah but there were other people in that time who were on the right fucking page and that's not to say that idea ideas don't evolve and that people don't evolve and that our social right. beliefs don't evolve but that things these big things if you're like well they were you know you call them a monster but they didn't know any better well somebody did so why didn't they
5: they did know
4: they did know they Sorry. chose ignorance.
5: So things are going great in Boston for two years, but then America had to be a big old bitch and pass the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850.
4: Yeah, William Still wrote that, quote, even the bravest abolitionist begins to fear that a fugitive slave was no longer safe anywhere under the stars and stripes. The Fugitive Slave Act was a law basically mandating free states and the people in them to assist in the hunting down of fugitive slaves.
5: Yeah. In the book, William points out some features of the Fugitive Slave Act, like how if judges ruled you to be a slave, they got $10. But if they ruled you to be at liberty, they only got $5.
4: From the feds?
5: Yeah. So they he, he's pointing out it's incentivized for you to be ruled a slave. Yeah. Everybody makes more money that way. Yeah. So guess what? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I think a lot like in Twelve Years a Slave, you would see even foreign free black people yeah. being kidnapped and taken down south and told they were slaves now. Right. Nothing, nothing to do. No, right. Nothing you can do about it because I'm gonna get ten dollars.
4: Yeah, because that judge is like, well, well, all evidence points that this is a free man and slavery's heinous, but uh, got a wagon I gotta pay off. <laughs> right. Oh, God. Um. <laughs>
5: mm-hmm. <clears throat> He also calls out a bunch of priests and reverends by name who defended the Fugitive Slave Act because, again, he's like, your Christianity's bullshit.
4: Dox them. Yes, I know.
5: I was like, I don't need to because they're dead and uh-huh. fuck them and forget their names forever, but I love that he did. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he said, including one who said, if I could liberate all slaves with one prayer, I would not dare offer it. Damn. they so fucked up to think about. I, I just... Because you know that if you did it to a white guy, and he would be, like, offended by the idea right. that his his liberty could be at all limited by anything, by uh-huh. anyone, but uh-huh. it's okay for me to do it to you for all these various reasons that don't make any fucking sense. You just, God. your
4: you know, oh, hands oh. curve into a <laughs> position that might fit around a neck, and you just want <clears throat> to, so... <laughs> Then their hypothetical fear became a reality when they learned that a warrant had been issued for their arrest. A newspaper clipping from the Boston Courier, dated October 26, 1850, says, This is my best Boston Courier. Fugitive Slave Law. We learned that a warrant out of this law was issued yesterday for the arrest of one William Craft, claimed to be a fugitive from Macon, Georgia. Craft is in the cabinet-making business at 51 Cambridge Street, and that all probability will not leave the city having, as he says, run far enough and will not run any farther. <laughs> Sorry, Boston.
5: <laughs> I, I mean...
4: <laughs> oh, you'd been so nice up to this point, but... So two men from Macon, Willis Hughes and John Knight, applied for the warrant after arriving in Boston days <laughs> earlier.
5: But Boston wasn't having it. In a letter to Dr. Estlin in Bristol about Ellen and William, the abolitionist and Reverend Samuel May wrote, A general feeling of indignation and a cool determination not to allow this young couple to be taken from Boston into slavery was aroused and pervaded the city. There were posters put up across the city describing the slave catchers, crowds formed outside Hughes and Knight's Hotel and outside the courthouse, members of the Boston Vigilance Committee sought ways to, quote, baffle the pursuing bloodhounds and relieve the city of their hateful presence. Police even arrested Hughes and Knight multiple times, accusing them of slander against William Craft for calling him a slave and for threatening to kidnap them. Um, But they successfully posted bail each time. The Boston Daily Times describes that after Knight made bail a third time, a crowd of black and white supporters of the Crafts, <laughs> I guess I have to do a Boston now, uh-huh. assembled, assembled in Court Square, many of them apparently for the purpose of making some violent demonstration when Knight should make his appearance. How was that? <laughs> it's not,
4: it's just, it's Pretty not, bad. I mean, it wasn't, I don't think you'd <laughs> fool anybody. No. In Boston. Yeah. Um, I don't know why Boston's so tricky I could You pick a western European country Or a Soviet nation and I'll give you their fucking accent Oh yeah but, And almost every region in the US But Boston, I, I mean I can do the uh, Ask not what your uh, country can do for you It's not good
5: Ooh, Yeah, Boston's so sorry To my Boston cousin Doug
4: <laughs> <laughs> So Boston is not ready to play With these two and neither are the crafts Okay, nope. Boston's stepping it up again Ellen, first of all, is being shuffled from safe house to safe house, at one point staying with a woman named Mary Carson, who wrote of Ellen, quote, I watched her with perfect admiration. She showed such great self-control, such perfect sweetness of temper and grace of manner. She could hear nothing from her husband all day and, of course, might suppose him in every danger. But she kept back her tears and kept up her sweet looks till late in the afternoon when a messenger came with news of her husband. Meanwhile, William armed himself at his shop and residence on Cambridge Street and then headed to Lewis Hayden's house on South Act Street for better protection. The Boston Chronotype reported that at one point William quote, was guarded by no less than 2 was guarded by no less than 200 of the black citizens of Boston all of whom were armed to the teeth and pledged to defend William and his wife as long as life lasts. Awesome. Badass and William himself wrote that he and Lewis Hayden had put a keg of gunpowder under Hayden's house with a fuse attached ready to light, should any attempt be made to capture us. They were gonna light up the whole fucking town.
5: They were ready to burn this bitch. Which I fucking love. Fucking cool. At one point, a wealthy man named J.T. Stevenson sent a message to William saying he would buy him and Allen's freedom if he would submit peaceably to an arrest. And according to the Boston Herald, William said that he, quote, represented some hundreds of fugitives, all liable to arrest and many of them not so well able or prepared to resist. That if he consented to be taken on such conditions, others would have no security and would have to flee to Canada and perhaps starve. If therefore his liberty could be purchased for two cents, he would not do it, but stand his ground and try the strength of the law. Balls of steel. Hell yes. So William and Ellen were reunited the next day on October 27th. And for the next few days, evaded capture from the slave catchers by frequently changing locations, some of which are still not known. So we know that they went back and forth and back and forth they sometimes, were but we didn't know quite everywhere they went. Like they had connections. I was on
4: lockdown. That's awesome.
5: Which is so cool. Um, and Hughes and Knight finally gave up, and they left Boston on November first. But William and Ellen knew America was not the place for them. As long as slavery was a thing, they would never be safe here. Right. Which is very sad. They decided to leave for England, and the Reverend Samuel May wrote, "Oh shame." Shame upon us that Americans, whose fathers fought against Great Britain in order to be free, should have to acknowledge this disgraceful fact. Is America the land of the free and the home of the brave? God knows it is not, and we know it too. A brave young man and a virtuous young woman must fly the American shores and seek, under the shadow of the British throne, the enjoyment of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Fun fact, Samuel May was Louisa May Alcott's uncle, the woman who wrote Little Women.
4: Because that family knew how to write some words.
5: Yeah, you can see why she kind of grew up thinking, you know what, we can do better. Yeah. But first, before they left for England, on November 7th, they were remarried according to the laws of a free state by abolitionist and friend, Reverend Theodore Parker. And after the ceremony, Reverend Parker gave William a revolver and a dirk knife to protect himself and his wife on their journey. I <laughs> what love a wedding it. gift. <laughs> I love it.
4: I now pronounce you husband and wife. Now take this, keep it on your ankle holster. <laughs> and if somebody gets too close, you shove them in the side. All
5: right. Helen, put this bag of bullets into your bag. All right. He had this revolver, he had his knife. They were married for real. It was time to escape again. And it's time for a commercial break yet again. <laughs>
1: at purdueglobal.edu.
4: All right, and we're back. They left Boston for Portland, Maine, and then continued on to St. John's, New Brunswick, Windsor, and Nova Scotia, where they took a coach to Halifax. But the coach broke down, and the Crafts missed their ship to England by two hours. Oh, my God.
5: So frustrating.
4: So they missed their ship by England. They had to wait two weeks for the next one. So Ellen tried to get them a room at a hotel. The proprietress had no problem with a white lady staying in the room as she saw Ellen, but she had a big problem with Ellen's black husband. They stayed one night, pretty much solely confined to their bedroom because the other guests were shitty, Mm -hmm. awful people. The landlady was like, Listen, I'm not prejudiced, but you're costing me money, so you have to go.
5: (laughs) She was prejudiced. There it is. She was prejudiced. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> Look, I'm not an asshole, but I'm gonna go ahead and be one. Yeah. And so William wrote that neither of them were dying to stay anyway, obviously, since they had to eat, sleep, and sit all in one small room. But they told her that she had to find them somewhere safe to stay first before they would go. So she found them a black family for them to stay with, Reverend Kennedy and his wife. And finally, after staying with them, they got their ship, they were off to Liverpool. <laughs>
5: Bonus romance in... Running a thousand miles to freedom, William writes that during their stay at the hotel, the Boots, who I guess shines the shoes, was a fugitive slave as well. He was around 45 years old. And he told William that when he was a young man, he had been married, but they sold his bride away from him and he had no idea where she was. And he stayed single for many years before and after his escape, but he eventually remarried. And then one day he's walking down the street and who does he see but his first wife. Turned out she had escaped to the Free States by secreting herself in a vessel, like stowing away on a boat, and then escaping into New Brunswick. Quote, for that protection which her native country was too mean to afford. She recognizes him, too, and she embraces him, and she asks if he's got married again, and when he says yes, she starts to cry. And he takes her back to his new wife... Quote, who was also a fugitive slave, and as they all knew the workings of the infamous sy- system of slavery, they could, as no one else can, sympathize with each other's misfortune. And they decided among the three of them that he would live exclusively with the second wife, but he could allow the first wife as much as a week, as long as she requested his assistance. Oh. So they figured it out. Look a little and triad I thought going. that was cute. They had a little, <laughs> a little bonus romance. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I got to include this. Yeah but just also another example of being sold away like a piece of property yeah. and how much that can affect your life forever i mean right. that's that's a really insane thing to happen
4: yeah so they get to england initially they stay at dr estlin's house in bristol hmm? but then they go to the ockham school in surrey for 3 years both as learners and as teachers in their respective crafts carpentry and sewing they settled in west london And had five (laughs) children. I hope I'm really painting the picture for you guys. Yeah. They settled in West London and had five children Charles Estlin Phillips, William, Brougham, Alfred, and Ellen. And they continued to speak out against slavery in America as they traveled England and Scotland. And in June of 1851, they staged a demonstration against American slavery at the London Great Exhibition, strolling through the American section arm in arm with white abolitionist friends to demonstrate the irony of encountering more racial tolerance in England, a country that had banned slavery from its Caribbean colonies in 1838, than in the so-called Democratic United States.
5: Yes, apparently it shocked quite a lot of the Americans who were there for the exhibition to see black and white people just hanging out like normal fucking people. (sighs)
2: So
4: they published their book, Running a Thousand Miles to Freedom, in 1860. Georgia Encyclopedia says that, quote, While the title page attributes sole authorship of the memoir to William, scholarship in the 21st century has revisited Ellen's involvement in writing and shaping their story. Several scholars consider Ellen's appearances with William at anti-slavery lectures as evidence of the memoir's collaborative roots, in addition to testimonies of Ellen's assertiveness that were provided by abolitionist friends during the post-bellum years.
5: Which I believe, because again, there's all those conversations that she witnessed... That she must have had a hand in retelling in their story. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And as more evidence to her strong personality, here's this. A rumor began to spread in the U.S. that Ellen had asked an American man in London to return her to her enslaver. So this is more of this propaganda bullshit Uh where they're like, they miss it. I promise they always Uh regret running away or whatever. God. And Ellen put a quick stop to that. She wrote in the Massachusetts Spy, "'I write these few lines merely to say "'that the statement is entirely unfounded, "'for I never have had the slightest inclination "'whatever of returning to bondage. "'In fact, since my escape from slavery, "'I have got on much better in every respect "'than I could have possibly anticipated.' Though, had it been to the contrary, my feelings in regard to this would have been just the same. For I had much rather starve in England a free woman than be a slave to the best man that ever breathed on the American continent. Hell yeah. Fuck yes, Ellen. I almost stood up, like, cheering when I read that. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) oh, that's my girl! And according to the National Park Service, William also traveled to West Africa to encourage an end to the slave trade. Yeah. Um, by negotiating a commercial treaty with some of the chiefs of the Western shores as a representative of English merchants.
4: So I'm going to the source.
5: Yeah. According to the Liberator, in 1863, Kraft met with the West African King of Dahomey to show him the superior advantages of peaceful and legitimate commerce over the atrocious slave trade with its concomitant barbarities. In
4: 1870, after the end of the Civil War... Ellen, William, and their five children returned to Georgia. They wanted to help newly emancipated men and women, so they started the Woodville Cooperative Farm School in 1873. William was quoted in the Evening Post New York in his argument for more schools as saying, The free schools for blacks which have been established by the several southern states only partly supply the needs of the black children for the reason that plantations are large and the population widely scattered in the country districts, so that the distances from their homes to the schools is necessarily so great that a very large number of black children are practically shut out of the schools provided for them by the state.
5: Oh, what a surprise. They didn't put enough time and energy into their resources for black people. Right. It really reminded me a lot of the voting stuff that's going on here right now keeping poll boxes far away, closing down a lot of them, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah,
4: accessibility is key. And if you are in charge of that accessibility and you can deliberately deny it, Mm -hmm. who's stopping you? Somebody needs to be.
5: Unfortunately, no one. They raised money from Northern publishers and anti-slavery friends to purchase 1,800 acres of land on which they built the school and a farm. And both were successful at first. But scandal erupted in 1876 when some of the backers accused William of personally using funds intended for the school. Damn. And he sued for libel to clear his name in Boston, but he lost the case in 1878, along with many longtime allies, according to the Georgia Encyclopedia. Damn. Which, speculation station, do you think that he did that? I
4: mean, I you know, I haven't heard the trial. (laughs) <laughs> so I couldn't really judge. I I mean, it's disheartening that they convicted mm-hmm. or, you know, that they didn't rule in his favor. So I don't uh, I don't know. On one hand, you want to say that, well, they went through the process and they uh, ruled that he did. But also, I don't know, is this a black ban up against white investors?
5: I guess that was my question. It's like it would be very easy to start a rumor against him that people would be quick to believe even if they are abolitionist and anti-slavery you know they still have you know they still have their their own prejudices in there somewhere that they might not be dealing with or you
4: know when money gets involved everything changes i mean family turns against each other when there's money involved so these guys might have just been like mm -hmm. but i mean from what i know of william i like to trust his character He's fucking yeah. cool, and he's been through some shit. I say give him a little bit of that money. You
5: know, <laughs> let him, let him spend it. <laughs> I don't know. I was definitely like, oh, really? That didn't jive for me with the person that, that I have built up now right. in my head from right. hearing the story. And, of course, it's a very bits and pieces of a whole person. Right. But, um, but it was definitely like, oh, really? So I wanted to see what you thought.
4: I would rule this speculation station inconclusive.
5: <laughs> the school closed without funds. And William struggled to maintain the farm in the face of increased debt, plummeting cotton prices, and increasing anti-black violence and legal oppression. Because, of course, it's 1870, so what's happening around this time? They're working on Jim Crow laws real hard. So (laughs) they're trying real hard to make it very hard to be black in this country without actually enslaving them anymore. Right. Um, So it's a bad time. I was kind of like, I wonder if they regretted ever moving from England once all that stuff was starting to happen, you know? So in 1890, the Crafts moved to Charleston to live with their daughter's family, and Ellen died shortly after in 1891, and William died in 1900.
4: And their story of escape just became well-known, and it proved to be an example for others fleeing slavery. They hoped their book would encourage, quote, a deeper abhorrence of the sinful and abominable practice of enslaving and brutifying our fellow creatures. Oh, man. I mean, talk about it. Yeah, edge of your seat adventure.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Really intense and wild story. I, I wonder, um, you know, why we haven't seen this movie yet because it's such a good story. And and uh, that conversa- this conversation has been coming up a lot lately too with movies about slavery and how focused they are on Torture porn, basically. That yeah. a lot of people are saying that it's just like I've have read some arguments recently from Black people specifically saying that it, it's enough. Like we're kind of done with this gratuitous, just representation of violence done to our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like well, this story certainly is rooted in that horror, without being a constant depiction of it. You know, like I think a lot of the same points are made. So I would be really fascinated to see someone take this story on mm-hmm. cinematically and really kind of represent this and and show people like I mean you just you get so much fury and rage at hearing the story. Mm. You kind of get to see all the other horrible things they were doing and just the horrible people that they were when they were by themselves.
5: I think I think it's important too to be like and some people had it relatively good. I mean in terms of like William and Ellen were favorites. They had good jobs, quote-unquote. Right. I mean, they had it as good as you could have it in that situation, and they still fucking hated it. Yeah. They still were like, fuck this, get me the fuck out of here. Yeah. And I think that's really important to note because it's like, it's not, you shouldn't, first of all, you shouldn't have to be beating on somebody to make it like oh you shouldn't own that person yeah right you shouldn't own a person no matter how you treat them yeah that's period end of end of fucking sentence so it would be a very important movie to see that too where it's like these guys are fine sort of but they're not fine because they deserve to be free and at liberty and to go about their fucking life however they want
4: yeah Enslaving someone and giving them a room in your house is still enslaving someone. I
5: mean, and, and then the fear of the, the having the children yeah. sold away and stuff like that. It's like an ever-present fear that's like, even if you're doing relatively fine, you're not being treated like Lupita Nyong'o in 12 Years a Slave right, or something. You right. shouldn't have to see that to be like, that's, this is not cool. Right. You should not be able to do this to anyone no. So anyway, I just think that, like you're saying, I think it would be a very powerful story to, to put to film because of that. And also it would be fun, it would be funny because the the amount of fun that they were having with some of these white people is really clear in the book. I I hope that it came across in the quotes I selected, but I was definitely like, and then even with the abolitionists, he's like, these guys are great. I wish I could tell them. (laughs) (laughs) I almost wish I could tell them what's going on, but I have to just be like, no, I'm good. Thank you so much. (laughs) 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 You know, so I just think it would be like such a cool, interesting film. Yeah. or or TV series or whatever to see their amazing heist of themselves.
4: Are you listening, Barry? Super cool story, though. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Uh, Don't forget to reach out. Hit us up on those emails.
5: Especially if you're Barry Jenkins and you want to make this movie.
4: (laughs) Romance at iheartmedia.com.
5: Yes, and, and don't forget to rate on Apple Podcasts if you will
4: yeah Show, um, throw it. us a review you know and some really great reviews too you guys have who have posted them uh, we mm-hmm. love them
5: they're very they're very uplifting so thank you and send us an email and also we're on the we're on the social medias
4: yeah I'm at oh great it's Eli
5: and I'm at Dynamite Boom and we're both at Ridic Romance on Instagram and Twitter
4: find us there yeah. say hey yeah we're super happy to have you and we'll be super happy to have you on the next episode
5: and we'll see you next time so long friends it's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbours, uncles and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance.
2: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
1: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This
4: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
4: We are the voice
2: of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and
4: we are underway. The great American race.
0: The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville. Talladega. The Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finish. Ryan Blaney will win the voice of NASCAR, the Motor
6: Racing Network. Zumo Play.